This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Bertle. If podcasts have seasons, we had a fun and eventful first season with 25 episodes produced and published. We talked to dozens of artists, educators, and technologists. We heard firsthand how the COVID-19 pandemic affects educators and how educators are stepping up to use their time and talent to create valuable PPE. Starting in May, we took some time off to recharge and plan for season two. In this season, we will continue to talk to educators and technologists and everyone in between, but we'll also add some new formats and explore new topics. Today, our guest is Liz Gallo. Liz is a technology and engineering educator who is CEO of Winemaker, a STEM professional development company. Winemaker focuses on cultivating technology-based project plans with teachers to improve student overall success. Liz and I discussed her work in a variety of schools providing professional development for teachers and how Winemaker is helping schools address the realities of teaching during the pandemic. Okay, Liz, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, um, especially in the sweltering heat of New York City, and you had to turn your fan off, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, But yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you. So I'm always curious about what people were like as kids, like what you were interested in. Where did you grow up and what, what were you interested in as a kid before kind of high school and all that? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Queens, New York. Uh, then we moved to Long Island. I really have this vivid memory of me being a young kid, getting a science kit that had a microscope, and I would collect ants and look at the ants under the microscope. Um, and it would just keep me interested for hours. Um, I would make like forts or like bridges for when the water was running down the curb of the sidewalk. I was always outside playing, exploring, building, creating. Uh, and you know, in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. When I grew up, still don't really know, but I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I was like, oh, I'll be a meteorologist. Oh, I'll be, uh, I'll own a hotel and I'll manage a hotel. Oh, maybe I'll uh, make chocolates. And then one day, uh, my mom said to me, she said, why don't you just go to school for teaching? And I was like, okay. So um, then that starts like a long story about going to school to be a teacher and how that progressed. So do you know why she said, I mean, were your parents teachers? Was she a teacher or do you know why she suggested that? Or was that just her knowing you better than you knew yourself or? Yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't a great student in school. I mean, I was always causing some sort of ruckus. So I don't know why she said that to me and I don't know why it stuck. There was another time after I was going through college and I fell in love with teaching that 
I came to the kitchen table and my mom and my dad and my grandparents are sitting there making a list of the whole entire family, trying to figure out how I got the teacher gene, how Mm. I became a teacher. And it was just such an interesting thing for them to to think about. So that that led to, so were you already in college when you made the pivot to majoring in education? No. So I started at the College of New Jersey. Uh, My degree was biology, elementary education. Mm -hmm. And I was in biology classes with all these pre-med students. And I didn't even, I was not on the same level as them. I had no idea what we were even doing in class, let alone like trying to figure out answers. Um, So Uh, halfway through my freshman year, I discovered the math science technology elementary education department. Mm -hmm. And I decided to switch to that. And my first technology class, I just fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, this is how we should be teaching our children, which just led to an incredible path of technology education, STEM education, maker education, truly believing in that. So what kind of technology were you being exposed to in your kind of pre-service teacher program? So it was a lot of design thinking work where we followed an engineering design process to create stuff. We were using, we were in a wood shop frequently. Mm. We had electronics classes. Electronics was actually my concentration within Mm. the major, which was pretty cool. Um, You know, it was was mid-2000s, so... Laser engraving was just coming up. Um, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I was totally exposed to. 3D printing, we were not exposed to at the time. Um, So we would make stuff like, kind of like we do with kids now. We'd make stuff out of foam. And we did this cool project where we made stuff, we made a playground out of candy. Uh, Just all around this like engineering design process where you think about problems, you create solutions and and build something that goes along with that. So that, I mean, mid 2000s, that's still well before kind of the maker movement really hit K through 12. So, I mean, that's really, I think, kind of forward thinking of that program to expose you guys to that as teachers, as pre-service teachers. So technology and engineering education has been around for a long time. Uh, You know, a hundred years ago, it was more than a hundred years ago, it was manual arts Mm. where we would learn, where students would learn trade. And then it morphed into industrial arts and a lot of people know technology education as industrial arts where it was wood shop and auto shop and metal shop. And, you know, traditionally at times it was only boys that would be signed up for those classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it transitions to technology education in the early 1990s and is transitions to technology and engineering education in the last couple of years. So it's always been there. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the heart of STEM. It's the creating and the engineering and uh, constructing and designing and building. And that's what our world functions on people who design and create and build stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I always think about like that, the transition from, when vocational was totally okay and a great career track to becoming kind of pejorative. And, you know, um, they really started to filter the kids who they didn't see, sadly didn't see promise in 
toward the vocational tracks. And then even worse than that, we just removed those completely from school. So I really see STEM and kind of the maker movement as putting that kind of learning by doing and learning those, like actually like building literacy with those tools back into school. But we just kind of lost our way, I feel like, in at least in the United States for you know a couple of decades. Um, so, and then kind of post-school, you started teaching. And what, what, what grades were you teaching? Where were you teaching? And what was that like? So I've taught every grade, kindergarten through 12th grade. I've taught in charter schools, private schools, public schools. Um, I taught technology education um, and I've done literally every project we could think about <laughs> for STEM and tech ed and, you know, changed a lot of districts' opinions about what technology education is. A lot of people think it's typing and mm-hmm. teaching computer skills and so much more than that. Uh, so always giving kids those opportunities. And in my first job, I was teaching in a charter school in a pretty rough neighborhood um, on Long Island. And, you know, it was my first opportunity to give a kid and their family hope because I recommended them to a CTE vocational program mm-hmm. because of the promise I saw in him for him to lead into an incredible career in welding. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, heard from him a couple of years later, he was a welder doing great work, making great money and couldn't be happier. So it's, it's awesome being a teacher. And so what you're teaching was mostly is that New York area, um, kind of Long Island, like different boroughs there. Yeah. So I taught, uh, never, I taught in a bunch of, um, on Long Island in New York city in Westchester County. I also did my student teaching in Croatia, uh, mm. where I taught at an American international school. I taught, um, elementary school there, second grade class. And so then at some point you decided to leave teaching and kind of branch out and become an entrepreneur. So what, what, what was, you know, what was the impetus behind that decision and, and that transition? So in my last job, I took on the position of president of the New York State Technology and Engineering Educators Association. And it was an awesome experience to help build a professional organization for educators and support them and give them tons of resources and knowledge to help them be better teachers. And I fell in love with that idea uh, of, of reaching so many teachers. And at the same time, or shortly thereafter, someone sent me an email saying, check out what this guy Lewis is doing in New York City. And I ignored the email. I was like, who's Lewis? Don't really care. So then uh, I finally get around to reading the email and I hear that Lewis is helping a school build a makerspace in Queens. And I was, I was like, well, if one school needs help building a makerspace, there's probably so many schools that need help building a makerspace. This is what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start helping schools build makerspaces. And quickly, very quickly, I realized that schools value me for my teaching experience more than they do for my ability to design a classroom. And I love helping teachers. So my business transitioned from designing and building makerspaces to professional development. So training teachers on STEM principles and maker ed principles and design thinking and how to use that in their classrooms. 
So this business winemaker, so that is kind of, you very quickly, what, did it start as the makerspace kind of design and then you quickly pivoted as you realized what they really needed was somebody who spoke their language, really, somebody who understood what their day was like and what they needed and, and what bridge you had to build between what they know and what they needed to know to teach in these situations. Totally. And that my skill set is in teaching, right? I'm a, I'm a great teacher and I can help teachers understand how to teach the way I've been taught to teach and the way I've been teaching for the last just 12 years, uh, more than I can decorate a classroom. And so, so can you just describe kind of generally what Winemaker does? Um, you so you guys are located in New York city, correct? Yep. Located in New York city. Although we work all over the place, work in tons of different States. We're going to Texas soon. So I'm super excited about that. Um, we help teachers feel comfortable and confident to teach STEM and maker education. Uh, we will do anything in our power to make sure that teachers are, are ready to teach classes. So we help them with building project plans. We help them with working through different types of technologies. So if we get a 3D printer, how do we use that 3D printer? Um, we help schools build STEM communities so having, you know, a principal or a school leader says, we want to be a STEM school. Well, let's stop and talk about what that means and then help build capacity within the building to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of coaching with teachers where we work one-on-one -on -one or in very small groups to help teachers be successful in teaching STEM and maker ed. So I, I feel like, you know, I, I also work in a similar kind of world as you. And I feel like what I've noticed, I mean, I kind of made the transition from working in colleges to K through 12 around 2013. And I noticed that like a lot of schools, the schools that had the means really rushed to build these kind of central maker spaces. And now there's like kind of like some tension between do we need a space with all of the things or should this be distributed? Should it be non-centralized, decentralized? So, I mean, how do you, does it depend on the community? Does it depend on their resources? I mean, how, what is the kind of formula that you find in today's world, as opposed to like 2013, um, for like what makes a successful STEM program in a school? I mean, what are the ingredients or the, the things they should think about? Yeah. So, uh, principals often say like, we're, we're buying a 3d printer. We're buying a thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars worth of robotic stuff. And I'm like, but why? What are we going to do with that? Um, so my first thing is define what does STEM mean to you? Define it. How are you using it? Are you using it as an adjective? Are you using it as a noun? Are you using it as a verb? How are you using that word STEM? Uh, and who is your STEM team? Mm -hmm. Who are these experts that are already in your building that are passionate about this, that are you know, wanting to explore this more, that are eager to learn more? Who are them? Who are they? And let's all bring them together and have these, these detailed conversations. So once we develop this, this definition, we then head into thinking about, okay, what skills do these leaders in the school building need to know in order to help everyone else on board uh, STEM education? Uh, typically, we find that schools that have maker spaces or these centralized locations uh, want other teachers to bring their students to this centralized place. Mm -hmm. uh, and teachers feel scared about that. There's big, scary machines in there. I don't want to break anything. I don't know how to use it. Right. Or, 
And schools that don't have centralized places want it to be dispersed into all the classrooms. So either way we look at it, schools wants them to be integrated into everything they're learning. And that's what I love and that's what I want to help out with and help teachers understand how they can actually make that happen. Um, so, you know, we'll bring teachers to makerspaces and talk through each of those tools in there, practice using them, getting comfortable, thinking about what project can you do with this tool. Uh, and then going the other way where we need to bring a makerspace to a classroom we start small. Like, what are some simple technologies, tools that we can get your kids working with that can, that is a, is a maker ed or STEM project? So it's really, so you're really looking at the culture. Um, I mean, really kind of not even reverse engineering. I feel like you're putting the, the, the most appropriate and most logical thing first. Who do they have in place? Who is going to be in charge of this? Who's going to do this? And then just what, what are these words that I feel like, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure you encounter this all the time, but I feel like teachers, school administrators, district administrators, they say STEM, they say maker. And, you know, through a conversation, I realized that maybe we mean completely different things or they have a, a very different idea of what that means. So mm -hmm. the biggest thing is figuring out almost like backwards design. Like you're trying to figure out what their goal is and then who they have to do that and what the tools are. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, are there situations where you say you guys should not build a makerspace, you should do this in the classroom or, um, I mean, do you go into to some places where they already have a makerspace that's not being used and help them actually breathe some life into it? Yeah. So that's like one of our favorite projects was, uh, a school medical principal and he said, we're building a makerspace. And I said, okay. I go, what are you going to do with it? He goes, well, people are just going to use it. And uh, what's going to be in there? What, who's going to use it? And, you know, we had nothing. And fast forward two years, we finally bought one 3D printer because some kids were interested in 3D printing. Uh, and it came from that. But before we did that, we spent almost six months defining an engineering design process specifically for that school. So it has their school logo, it has their school colors, it has words that those teachers said are important and a process that makes sense to them. Uh, we talk through each step of the process, we practice with each step of the process, we bring kids into the makerspace and we do simple projects to get them comfortable in the space, to you know, get them using different types of materials and tools. And then slowly we build and we add onto the projects and the teacher capacity and Next thing you know, they're telling me they're buying a 3D printer and I couldn't be happier. So do you feel like, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, as a teacher and as a consultant, one of the biggest issues is that sometimes during the summer, the principal or head of school will make all of this happen and there'll be all of these things and rooms that have been reallocated and the teachers are kind of the last to know. So do you feel like your process gets like a lot more buy-in from the teachers since it involves them in the design? Totally. It, it's their words. And I make sure they know that, you know, with this school in particular, I sat with all the teachers and we talked about what these steps should be, what a project looks like. You know, we talked about what a design portfolio looks like, how kids are going to track their work. And we built all that together. So they were with me the whole way. And that was the best part. So then you guys are then during that design process, because one of the things 
I feel like even schools with really successful STEM maker programs, like assessment is kind of the constant concern. I mean, not just like, where are we going to find this in this time for this in the schedule, which is the other concern, but how do we assess this? So it sounds like you're having the, the conversation about assessment happens as you design the coursework and the curriculum. Yep. Totally. Um, I can tell you another story that we just, that I'm super proud of that we just, uh, completed. Mm-hmm. Um, we, through virtual learning, that's been happening over the last couple of months, we got in contact with a nonprofit organization in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they, what they typically do is they go into the school with these mentors and they read with kids, they do math with kids, just try to build the capacity for kids in these, in this low socioeconomic neighborhood. Um, they work specifically with kids from one housing project in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, and their goals are to increase their reading, increase their writing, increase their math. So got in contact with this organization and we decided to send STEM kits to all of their children and to a bunch of mentors. And every week for eight weeks, I trained mentors on projects to do uh, with the STEM kit, particularly using three ducks designs. Mm-hmm. And we did a ton of, uh, so I trained the mentors every week. And then the mentors went and had a personal virtual session with each kid to talk through a STEM lesson. And the ultimate goal was to like design something to help your community. What we just discovered this week is that we tested kids pre-assessment, we tested kids post-assessment on their STEM skills and their essential skills, which to me means soft skills, but I don't, they're not soft, they're essential to living your life. Things like collaboration, creativity, problem solving. Mm -hmm. So we assessed kids pre and post and we discovered that there was a 37% increase in uh, STEM skill knowledge and a 26% 26% increase in their essential skills, their ability to be problem solvers, creative thinkers, reflective learners. So wow. people talk a lot about assessment and how you can't assess STEM, but you can, you can, when you think of it as we're assessing for, you know, life skills, these, these essential skills, that's what we're assessing for. That's what we're doing STEM and maker ed for us. Cause we want our kids to have, to be problem solvers and designers and creators and be reflective and work collaboratively. We can assess that and we can make improvements. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think, I think a lot of times I encounter instruct or educators who are concerned about assessment, but then I find out that, you know, they're giving a lot of worksheets and kind of, you know, um, what I would not say is progressive, you know, education assessment techniques and, and the kind of assessment you're talking about, it's more work, but it's really the kind of assessment we should be doing in general, not just, not the exception. It should be the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, so how have things, it sounds like, you know, you have adapted to the pandemic really easily, but I mean, what's, what's different? How are you guys adapting to the pandemic? What kind of work have you been doing since? Cause I mean, you know, you're in New York city, so you guys have been in this, I'm in Chicago and you know, we kind of watched in horror as this was happening to you guys. And I really, you know, sadly, I feel like we got a little bit of warning from watching you guys and we were able to prepare a little bit more. Um, so like, how did the pandemic affect your work and and what kind of pivots did you do, if any, um, as kind of the leader of your company? 
Yeah. So as soon as school shut down, we were not allowed back in school buildings um, and teachers panicked. Uh, teachers across the country, across the world panicked. They didn't know what to do. So we started off just helping out teachers, whatever we can do to help you. Like, let me take something off your plate. Uh, I work with Cornell Tech here in New York City. And some of the work we did as soon as the pandemic started and as soon as schools were shut, where we were offering one-hour sessions on computational thinking to students online. So kids from classes would come meet us online and we'd do this like really fun, engaging computational thinking activity. And to me, that felt like just something to help teachers out. Like, let me take an hour of your class time a week. You don't have to be there. Like we can, you know, we can manage your kids. And we did some great lessons with them. So that was one way we started out helping teachers and then just providing trainings on all sorts of different things. We did some great unplugged activities, uh, professional development, where we talked about uh, like a hundred and something different unplugged activities you can uh, mm. give your kids to, to do. Uh, and to me, that's all STEM. Anytime right. you're like exploring and creating something, it's all STEM. Sure. Uh, we did another great workshop on strategies to engage all learners. So kind of a special ed focus, uh, but really like what tips and tricks do you need to do to think about those kids with special needs in your classroom? So, you know, learning disabilities, ADHD, uh, um, some processing disorders, what can you do to help those kids? And we did some great presentations on that. Uh, towards the end of our school year, we started doing a lot more with the STEM and maker ed. Um, we sent maker kits to teachers and did mm -hmm. professional development that way. So typically we would bring all the stuff to your school and build and create and design together in teams and we can't do that. So we sent kits with all the supplies to schools and trained teachers on maker and stem like we typically would um you know we did that with robotics we did that with craft supplies we did it with micro bits so there's so much that we've done to continue to engage teachers in stem because i truly believe if you're if you were a stem school before if you were a stem teacher before you're still a stem school you're still a stem teacher so we still need to be treating people and giving our students those opportunities. Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting that's come out of this, I mean, I think a lot of us, I, I'm as guilty as anybody of thinking, I haven't said to my kids, oh, it's like, we'll be home for three or four weeks and, you know, we're going to make some bread and watch a bunch of different movies and then we'll be back in school. You know, here we are six months later um, and at least in Chicago, we're nowhere near going back to in-person in school, but one of the interesting conversations I hear with a lot of heads of school and a lot of people working in schools is this idea of place-based education. And, you know, is, is this kind of the end of place-based? I mean, are we do, is it going to be decentralized? I mean, are we going to do some teaching remotely and some teaching in person going forward? Is, is this going to permanently change education? I mean, do you see us going, you know, at least in, in the schools you interact with and the educators you interact with, do you see them wanting to go back to the way it was or kind of learning from the things we've had to do during the pandemic and coming up with like a hybrid? So with that um, organization in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Urban Impact, what 
we learned very quickly was that the kids didn't understand what community was. And that broke my heart when we realized that our kids have totally lost a sense of community. Um, Because typically your community is when you go to church on the weekend, that's part of your community. Okay, now you're not going to church. You know, it's your friends you're playing with outside. Okay, you're not doing that. Oh, it's your cousins you see on the weekend. Okay, now you're not doing that. It's your school when you go to school. Why is it your school? Because your teacher is creating this community where we help each other. We we have class jobs. We look out for each other. We take care of our friends. We listen to each other. And that wasn't happening anymore. And that broke my heart. And that made me realize that our kids need other kids. Uh, I don't, some kids can work well in remote learning, but kids need other kids. They need opportunities to talk to other kids, to be around other kids, to play with other kids, to experience life with other kids around them. And we can't give that to them remotely. So, you know, the, maybe the concepts of like the flipped classroom, blended learning, some of those things are positives, but you still see uh, very much a real need of, you know, a, a, an actual physical third place, I guess is what a lot of pe- people consider the school to be um, for kids to go to congregate, you know, p- hopefully post pandemic um, when there's a vaccine and it's safer to do so. Um, you know, you, you see, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, are there lessons from, teaching remote that we would want to keep. I mean, I know some teachers are like, if they could never use Zoom again, they would be totally thrilled by that. And I'm sure a lot of us feel that way. But do you think there are things that we should keep that we learned during the pandemic about teaching remotely that would be positive to combine with that place, that place, that place-based community that you're talking about? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons that we learned during remote learning that can really help our teachers and our students going forward. One thing that was really obvious to me when we started remote learning was that we can't digitally replicate what we've been physically doing. We mm-hmm. had to teach differently. We had to, you know, be more creative about the projects that we're giving to kids for a hundred reasons. One, we don't have internet. Everyone doesn't have internet access all the time. Two, these people are so far away from each other. We can't do the in-person stuff like we've been doing. Um, so we've, we, we've have to redo it. And some things that came out great were that we were doing more project-based learning. We were giving kids more opportunities to work in teams remotely and and explore things that they were interested in and connect to the world around them more. I love that. That's something we should totally keep. And then all of the technologies that we started using, you know, Flipgrid, Google Classroom, all of these things are so powerful for helping kids learn and, and connect to how our kids today are, are, think about the world. So they're, they're, they're technologically literate um, and we need to keep them learning and thinking and engaged with their devices. Mm-hmm. So you guys, um, you know, last week we, our mayor here in Chicago said, you know, we, CPS, Chicago Public Schools is not going back in person. It was a big pivot from their original plan. And at least to start, they're going to go remote. But I think New York, you guys are the lone of the big school districts. You guys are the lone one still going back in person. And, and when you and I were chatting before this recording, you said that the governor had kind of said everybody in New York State is going back in person. So what is that like, you know, as a teacher and as a person who interacts with a lot of teachers? I mean, what? how are people feeling? I mean, 
there's got to be a lot of trepidation on the part of the teachers and staff on being in person. But what is the overall feeling and what is your feeling about that? I think the feeling is pretty consistent. Um, teachers are scared. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of our New York City public schools, they're unhealthy places without a pandemic. They don't mm-hmm. have good airflow. They don't have, you know, working bathrooms. They don't have, you know, clean facilities. And that's that's tough. So, you know, I'm sure teachers are feeling that. I know that all I see on social media is teachers being really upset about going back to school. Um, you know, and the teachers I talk to don't know how to plan. They don't know. Do I plan for a remote? Do I plan for in-person? Do I plan for hybrid? Hybrid doesn't make sense. Hybrid's so much more complicated. You want me to teach in person and remotely at the same time? That seems so complicated. Um, so teachers are, are really concerned. Um, and as a teacher, I, I, feel the same way. I feel that I, I, I get it. It's, it's crazy. And, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to help teachers support them, whatever they need. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there's some things that would trigger remote for you guys. Like, you know, um, if are, are there a lot of schools doing kind of pods where they're isolating like a single teacher with a single cohort of kids, or is it just kind of all over the place what you're seeing people do? It's all over the place. It seems like every school district is doing something different, has a different schedule. Um, all of our plans have to be approved by the governor. So whether you're, we need a, an approved in-person plan, an approved remote plan, and an approved hybrid plan. Uh, and that all had to go to the governor two weeks ago. And he's, they've been approving plans or reviewing them. He said he's going through it with a fine tooth comb. Um, we have to put a lot of trust in our school administration that they're making good choices for the health of everyone, teachers, mm-hmm. faculty, uh, and students. So when do schools go back as far as like public schools in New York city, like what's, or in that area, what's, what's like the first day of school for you guys? Typically the day after labor day. Okay. So same so, as Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So there's still a, there's still a long, a, a good month, I guess, just about as of tomorrow. Um, so kind of changing gears a little bit, and this is like something you and I were chatting about before, and I think there's some interesting tension here. Um, but like, what advice do you have for teachers that want to kind of take the path that you've taken, like to go from being like that in-person classroom teacher focused on like a small community of children working with their colleagues to being kind of an entrepreneur, or like a consultant going out there and doing the professional development like you do? I mean, what, what do teachers need to know about that move before yes. they do it? Um, so my goal is to keep as many teachers in the classroom as possible. Uh, and I want to support teachers in their classrooms, doing good things in their classrooms. And oftentimes teachers feel it's tough. It's hard being a teacher and you feel like I just have to do something else. I just have to get out of here. And I want to come in there at that point and inspire them that we can, continue to be in the classroom and we can do it in a way that's enjoyable for you and your students. Uh, So that's where I want to get teachers when they feel like that. But I totally understand that some teachers do want to become entrepreneurs and consultants. Um, What I do know is that you you have to have a good network of Mm -hmm. people who know you, who you can rely on for connections and um, you have to you have to have a pretty decent name in your area or where you want to be in order mm-hmm. to, to make that jump. 
Um, someone once told me, and this is for all teachers, someone once told me that their company, their Amazon, loves hiring uh, teachers because teachers have the ability to solve a problem on the drop of a hat. They will do whatever it takes to get the job done. And I think oftentimes teachers feel like I can't do anything but teach. It's all I know. I went to school as a kid. Then I went back to school to think about going, uh, being in school. And then I went back to school. Like I've done nothing but school. And, you know, don't really know that you have so many valuable skills that people out in the business world don't have and probably could use some more of. Um, but everything like keep staying organized, writing lesson plans. That's like that's some serious business planning you're doing. Um, mm. Evaluating. And being critical about work, like that's a skill that tons of people want in the business world. Being able to like manage a group, present yourself, speak publicly. Those are all skills that uh, teachers have and they have because they've been doing it for so long that, that the business world loves and sucks up. Yeah, I imagine like the emotional intelligence that teachers develop. I mean, you know, really checking in with each child under your care and kind of reading their faces and seeing how they're feeling. I feel like that's something that's so valued in like CEOs and COOs and things like that right now that that a teacher could bring. So you're saying that, you know, going out, starting your own consultancy is one option, but even like finding roles in other industries is totally possible and I guess it's like the the total inversion of the whole, you know, really negative adage, those who can't teach. It's really, you're saying that teachers have skills that could be applicable in a broad range of industries. Totally, totally. Uh, teachers can be really successful in lots of different industries. Sure. I think one thing that people don't really realize about like becoming a consultant is like this, the sheer amount of sales that it is like you're selling yourself. You are constantly reselling yourself to the existing clients you have, but you know, somebody who does not necessarily care for the sales part is probably not going to be super happy running their own consultancy. I mean, you really, you kind of have to, uh, write the, write the gospel and preach it. I feel like. Yeah. So being a consultant, (laughs) Totally. Being a consultant, being a small business, I am doing a lot. I am doing sales. I'm doing content creation. I'm writing blogs. I'm doing social media. Um, So it's a lot. It's, you know, and teaching was a lot too. Um, The difference with teaching was that uh, my kids were showing up in my room at 810 and I needed to be ready. In the business, it's like, oh, that didn't get done today. Let's try to do it tomorrow. but that urgency isn't there and you know, that mm. repetition isn't there every day. You're doing something different every day. You're talking to someone different. Um, and sales is something that I had to learn that I'm still learning. Uh, mm-hmm. cause it is a key part of being a business owner and it's incredibly tough right now during the pandemic, but it it's, it's not a skill that comes easy to you. And I said the other day, I was like, I can't believe there are people who like, get excited by doing sales like it is mm. not fun <laughs> yeah it's like a necessary evil really yeah so kind of changing gears again um and i'm just really curious about this with everybody even not just people i'm interviewing but just people i'm talking to so during this hellscape that is the pandemic um what are you doing for like kind of escape what are you watching what are you reading what are you consuming media wise what what's getting you through this it would be at netflix books, podcasts, anything. 
So I never really watched a lot of TV prior to the pandemic, but now we're watching TV every night. Mm. Uh, Mostly Netflix, HBO. I love watching documentaries. It's relaxing Mm. to me to like lie on the couch and watch documentaries. I've been doing a lot of that. I found it really difficult at the beginning of the pandemic to read. My mind Mm. was going everywhere and I was, you know, we were in panic mode consistently for a long period of time. So it was really hard to read. Uh, and I used to love listening to audiobooks and listening to podcasts, but I did that mostly when I was commuting or traveling. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm not doing that anymore and I'm on Zoom all the time and I have my headphones in all the time, I'm not loving listening to things in this digital format uh, so much anymore. So we've been watching a lot of TV. Uh, I've been working out a lot, taking lots of long walks around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um We've finally started exploring places we can drive to, to walk. So that's been a fun adventure. Um, but yeah. Um, so. Any uh, documentaries that you've watched that you want to recommend? We just finished um, the immigration one on Netflix. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It was. Immigration Nation. Yep. Uh, yeah. The one that the Trump administration tried to block. Yeah. Huh. I'm sure it, it heartbreaking, 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 heartbreaking. Um, I don't know. It it made me so difficult. It's so difficult to watch. We also watched on Disney plus there's a great documentary of, um, the elephants that travel across the Okavango from the Mm. Okavango Delta to another river in Africa. And it's almost like a three part, documentary because there's the story of the elephant migration and then there's the story of how they made that documentary and then there's the story of people figuring out where this Okavango Delta comes from by backing through the river that Mm. leads to the Delta so uh, that was really 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 great and I love elephants so (laughs) So oh, one totally heartbreaking immigration nation yeah. and one, uh, the elephant. Do you know what the name of that is on Disney plus something, something oh, elephant, something, something Okavango elephant. Nice. <laughs> National Geographic's awesome. on Disney plus. Oh that yeah. That was great. Yeah. Okay, Liz. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule, getting ready for this new school year, um, to sit down and talk to me. Where can people find you and your work? So we're at Ymaker on social media, W-H-Y-M-A-K-E-R. The website is ymaker.co. And we love to work with all sorts of schools. So any school leaders, any school principals, superintendents, uh, heads of associations, we'd love to chat with you about doing STEM and maker ed professional development for your educators. Awesome. Well, I will put all of those in the show notes and we really appreciate all your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. A special thanks to Liz Gallo of Ymaker. The Depth and Light podcast is produced in its entirety by me, J.D. Pirtle, including original music. If you have show ideas or general feedback, reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com. At